Yeah, swearing, that's up to you, Anthony. Is it allowed? Is it not allowed? So the swearing is fine. Usually what I do is I like edit it in post, but like feel free to speak freely. Don't worry about censoring yourself or anything like that. If you edit it in post, it also might sound like a long beep. Welcome to the show, Kitsa. You are the creator of Sizzy and a few other interesting things on the internet. Oh, uh, hi. What do you do on the internet every day? No, that's a loaded question. We don't have four hours for the podcast. I try to do way too much and I'm in constant cycles of getting burned out, saying I'll do a little bit less, never doing a little bit less, getting burned out again and repeating. Mostly I'm messing around with web dev, building products, managing products. We're going to talk about Sizi and other stuff that I've built. Mostly web developing, trying to build this Sizi startup and a bunch of other things. Whatever you want to get into, we're going to get into it. Yeah, I think it's worth starting with Sizi, really. What is Sizi? And how do you spell it so people can Google it? Yeah, it's S-I-Z-Z-Y. And probably there's going to be links in the description and stuff. Once I paid for an ad for it and it cost a lot of money and the host pronounced it as sizzle or something <laughs> and we couldn't undo it. So Sizi started as a tool for testing responsive design. And for the longest time, we marketed it as the browser for responsive design. But after a like couple of months working on it, now we have a small team who works on it. We rebranded to the browser for developers. Meaning if you're a developer and you open localhost in your daily work, you're wasting time if you're using any other browser. And if all of your work, regardless whether it's responsive design or not responsive design, if it's not done in Sizi, you're wasting time. So that would be the pitch. I've used it from its early days of the responsive browser tester. So much has been added to it over my period of usage. Let's get into the crux of it. We'll start obviously with the feature I know most, the responsive testing. Do you want to pitch it or should I? I would love to hear your pitch on the responsive testing in Sizi. <laughs> well, as a, what would I call myself? A full stack JavaScript engineer that sometimes do websites for other people. I used to do more of them. You would obviously build a front end experience. You know, for me, it was a lot of the time in Gatsby or Next, connecting things like Shopify. I've been doing it myself this week. You need to test, you know, your mobile menus, your grids on different screen sizes. It's so easy as a developer to just be like, I've took my window and I've just made it smaller and it looks fine and made it bigger again. And it looks fine. You go, I've got an iPhone 12, so I'm gonna test on that. Yep, looks fine and call it a day and done. But what we tend to forget is that there's so many different kinds of phones out there, so many different kinds of tablets, so many different kinds of web browsers that all emulate and interpretate websites differently. So the job of Sizzy is to show you on one nice pretty screen your website on multiple devices at the same time, giving you that full experience where you can scroll, you can view, you can open a menu, and it actually is linked all the way between them. Everything I've said there is correct, right? <laughs> I like the pitch, but not everything is correct there. I'm not sure if you're aware. And I don't like, you know, to spread any fake information about CZ. It doesn't simulate different browser engines. So everything is Chromium. The difference is, like, even when you use Google Chrome and when you go to a responsive menu, right, you're still in Chromium. 
the difference is what we try to build is all the devices run Chromium, but we try to run simulations on them, like the pixel density and many other things that any other browser won't give you. If you open an iPhone 11 in Google Chrome and if you open an iPhone 11 in Sizi, we simulate the actual size because we also simulate like the browser UI, the OS UI, so you get like the iPhone clock and everything else. And basically you will see how much actual space do you have left for your website. Instead of like, if you open it in Google Chrome, you'll get like a very tall device and you might think, oh, cool, I have enough space for this page. I don't need to make it smaller or whatever. So we try to simulate as many things as possible, but we're not simulating different browser engines might potentially happen in the future. So you would still need like for quick testing and for day-to-day -day work, definitely all the time I use Sizi, maybe not in the responsive tab all the time, but you would still need to, when you do final testing, you still want to see if it's going to break on an actual Safari browser or an actual Android tablet. So we have a future plan to actually run like real simulations, but for now we're mostly focused on which things we can simulate. So when you work on your website, you make sure that not a lot of things are broken. Except responsive design, these things include like dark mode, light mode, simulating a software keyboard, simulating network conditions, simulating different users. I can list a bunch of things that even you as an early stage CZ user will be like, wait, what? I can simulate multiple users? I've never tried that because a lot of our users don't know what CZ can do. And even I sometimes I'll go and do something and CZ will give me like a badge, like points that I unlocked something. And I'm like, oh crap, I forgot that we ever built this. That's nice to have. Yeah, long story short, it simulates responsive design, but it also simulates a thousand other scenarios that you're forgetting. Like you might be developing in light mode and you're going to forget to check how your website looks in dark mode. And CZ gives you an option to see side-by-side -side light mode, dark mode, Chinese language, English language, slow network conditions, user one, admin user, and guest, and basically just see across all of these scenarios if your page is going to break. I didn't mean to say that it was emulating the actual browser because that's a very hard task because then you've got to stop supporting certain CSS rules in different browsers and that, yeah. That is obviously a lot harder to do. One of the other things that I really like about it is it's really good for taking screenshots because, you know, you can get a full page screenshot. You can get like a screenshot with the UI. That's really good. But that's only half the features and you've been working on it for a really long time. And that's most of the features, I will be honest, I have used. I've dabbled in the rest of the features, but I've never gone fully into them yet. When we start talking about them, when we say that, you know, you remarketed it, from the responsive browser tool to a full development browser. How does that go to that next level? What else can the browser do to help everyday developers? We remarketed to that when I realized that me and a lot of other users actually use it in full mode. And full mode looks like any other browser. Like when you develop something in Google Chrome and you have the dev tools open, you're basically in full mode in Sizi. What does a browser for developer means is we have enough plugins and built-in things that usually in Google Chrome, you would need to install like 50 extensions to get those. But still at the end of the day, those extensions won't talk to each other and they won't complement each other in a way that makes you feel like, oh my God, it's the tool that was missing in the space for whatever task you're working on. Let's say you're working on your meta tags and you want to make sure that your social previews are going to be fine. There's a tab for that in Sizi. As you're working on your meta tags, you can actually see real previews of how will this website look like when I share it on Twitter, share it on Facebook, share it on LinkedIn. Or for basically any other scenario that you're working on, there is a feature in Sizi that you might, let's say you want to convert a color, you'll 
find something for converting colors in CZ. Or let's say you want to kill a port. There's a process running on port 3000. You want to kill it. There's a feature for that in CZ. And there's like billions of these like small and big things that as you discover them day by day, you're going to be more and more amazed at how were you working in a browser that doesn't have all of these features. I would suggest you, there's a little icon in the corner, like a tutorial cap thing that when you click on it, there's a huge checklist of things that you can try and we give you points as you explore them. And if you get to level like CZ Wizard, you've explored basically most of the stuff that we have in CZ. So if you want to play around and see what's there, you can just go through the list. One of the things that changed my life basically, oh, I, I just realized how much I hate talking about the features that we have. It feels like tapping myself on the back constantly. But one of the major things that helped me is I worked on many projects and I change between them daily. So I work on open source libraries or different front-end projects or full-stack projects, Blitz app, whatever apps I have, I had to previously organize them on disk using my finder to open a terminal, navigate to the folder, blah, blah, blah. We built something called CZ Projects where you visually organize all of the projects that you have on disk. So when I need to switch between a project, I can just run a command and easily open that project in my code editor, open it in finder. With just like one command, I switch my entire context and suddenly I'm working on that project. CZ contextually switches my notes, my to-dos, my bookmarks, my links, my devices. So everything switches for working on that project. You Usually in a regular browser, this will look like you open a bunch of tabs, let's say your deployment URL, your GitHub URL, and a bunch of other things. And then once you're done working with that project, you need to close all of your tabs and open a new set of tabs. In CZ, like all of these tabs are remembered and you just switch projects and suddenly you have your GitHub repo, your deployment URL, docs, whatever you need for that project. That's interesting because before we started recording, you were futzing about with Zencaster trying to figure out how to get a, like a keyboard shortcut for muting. And I think this is a thing with some devs, they are just never satisfied with the tools they have and they always have this need to create their own and get it highly optimized for their own setup. So where do you think that came from for you, this desire to like have full control over your tools and the workflows? You nailed this point because Everything that I've ever built, my only drive, my only motivation, and I hate myself for it, is I hate that certain processes are a certain way. Like I was never driven by money or a financial goal or a number that I have. It's just I start doing things like what back when I was freelancing, they told me, hey, this this website needs to work on four different devices. As soon as I started using Google Chrome and switch between iPad, then iPhone, then iPad, then iPhone, then desktop, I'm like, how do people work this way 30,000 times per day? So I just make like a fork in my life and I pause everything I'm working on. And I'm like, the world needs a browser for developers right now. So as I was working on it, you know, when you open the gates and you're like, wait, now that we're building this and now that it's an Electron app, the possibilities are endless. So basically everything that I hated in my web development process, like managing my projects or using the terminal or using a red border around my elements in order to debug CSS. So all of the features that you see in CZ are 99% based on my frustration. So of course we listen to user feedback, we listen to what do the users want, but sometimes you have to invent and give users something that they don't know that they need. I think that's where invention comes from when nobody thinks like, it would be nice if I organize my projects in a visual way. I hate using the terminal. So nobody will upvote that feature on a roadmap that you have. Like, hey, kids, we all need a way to organize our project. So sometimes I have to, you know, listen to my own frustrations and be like, okay, the users want one thing, but we're going to give them something completely different that's based on my frustration. And then you listen to their feedback and they're like, oh my God, this like saves me so much time. We can call this like frustration-driven development, maybe. I have to admit that I've literally just loaded up Tizzy. I've looked in the top right and I've seen the 
hat icon. I forgot what they call them now. And I've actually done a few of them without noticing. That shows you how much I've noticed it. But I'm still such a novice still. I'm still like the first level. And there's loads of cool features in there. One of the big things that I wanted to ask about it was, as you could say, a browser developer, do you find that we are changing the way we build websites necessarily and the tools that we're using to build them are becoming complex enough that they now need their own suite of debug tools that are not good enough for the default debug tools. Nothing is good enough. I'm talking about this in all of my talks. Basically, I show this slide. How do other people work like movie editors or people who create games or people who create like 3D models or worlds or VR apps, whatever it is, all of them are creating more complex things than us web developers. We're just moving rectangles around, right? And all of them have these amazing tools that they work in. We're the only ones who still fire up a terminal and a regular browser. Like the browser that you use for shopping and for recipes, you're using the same thing for building apps. And you have this right-click inspect element thing that's, it's fine. It has things. I don't want to offend, you know, the Chrome developer tools or whatever, but there's like a gazillion things missing. My frustration is there's still more things missing, more tools missing in this space. So we can finally feel like one of these, you know, game developers who have all of these nice visual tools for building stuff. I still think that we're very, very far, even with things like Sizi or whatever else is out there, we're very far from having this set of tools because most developers want to feel like hackers day to day. They want to fire up the terminal. They want to do things the old school way and they want to feel good about how complex their life is. That's why we're not getting there. <laughs> I think one of the biggest things that is the blocker is teaching and is learning. Even if Chrome could do everything Sizzy could do, how do you start teaching people about these things? How do you start guiding people? And that's what your education tool inside Sizzy is actually really good at. And talking about future tools that how are we still doing this so badly? My perfect example is debugging. Debugging JavaScript as a beginner, you have no clue where to start apart from a console.log. I still don't know where to start. I still use console.log. I've learned the upgrade, debugger. <laughs> and then you run debugger and you're like, okay, time to run my console.logs. <laughs> That's fancy. If you're using a debugger, you can call yourself senior rockstar ninja developer. <laughs> Talking about these tools, you said that Sizi already has tools built into it. So you've already got half of the Chrome plugins a average developer would install built into it. Do you find that it is easier and better to integrate somebody else's tool, as in from the Chrome web store, or to build the tool yourself? This is like an analogy I can use here because we don't actually install the Chrome extensions. We don't actually use the UI of the popular Chrome extensions or whatever. We just see which things are missing and we build them as our own plugins. And the difference I can tell you is I'm using WebStorm as my code editor. And if I'm good at guessing, you're probably using VS Code as 99% of the planet, right? Mm -hmm. And the difference between WebStorm and VS Code is you install WebStorm, it's ugly, you change the theme, you install Material UI, and then you have everything working out of the box. So you're using it at day to day, you're just surprised by all the magic things that they put into it. You don't install plugins, you rarely do. And you have all of these magical surprises, like I'm going to be refactoring React and suddenly knows how to extract a piece of React, combine it into a variable, move it somewhere without me thinking about installing a plugin. Or you have VS Code where you have to install 50 plugins that don't understand each other 
And at the end of the day, you're still far from the magical experience that's WebStorm. I understand a lot of people don't want to pay for it, even though there's like an open source version, there's a free version and everything else. And a lot of people love hype things. Like if your favorite thought leaders are using VS Code, no matter which magical things there are in WebStorm, you're still going to be stubborn and you're still going to try to make VS Code WebStorm with 50 plugins. This is funny because I have a buddy who actually is a WebStorm evangelist, much like you are. So he's made this exact pitch to me many times. And didn't JetBrains just announce like their new kind of VS Code competitor editor just like a couple of days ago? Do you know anything about that? I saw it. Just to finish my previous thought, it's basically the comparison, like CZ is like you have all the plugins built in and it works magically out of the box. In Google Chrome, you would have to install 50 plugins that don't talk to each other and you you get like a half-assed experience at the end of the day. Regarding the WebStorm, I'm not saying that it's perfect, but every time I try to switch to VS Code, it's like, why do I need to build this myself? It's like somebody's handing me a box of Legos, half of them are built and half of them are have very unclear instructions about what do I need to build. I saw the new editor by WebStorm. I don't know what's their goal with that, but I guess they want to modularize all of their editors and kind of make this thing that will be similar to VS Code. I'm not sure what they're going to do, honestly. I don't know what's their strategy because they're selling WebStorm as a package. So now they have this bare bones editor that you would need to install plugins to. So not sure where that's headed. I still have faith behind the team who's working on this because they understand all the languages, they understand all of the needs, and they've done pretty magical things inside of WebStorm. So I have faith. We'll see. One of the interesting things that we can talk about is the rise of browser editors. And this is a really interesting one. Obviously, we have Code Spaces and Gitpod. But what I'm actually really interested in, and I'm wondering if you've seen it or have any opinions on where it's going, is actually editing your code through your browser. Edge, I think, are doing it now. Every time I open the developer tools in Edge, it says, oh, tell us where your VS code is. Tell us where this is. And every time I've done it, it's crashed. But I think they're trying to get it to a point where you can like edit from inside the browser. My stance on browser editors is I don't want to use them because all of them are based on Monaco, which is the VS Code editor. I'm way too used to all of my shortcuts and all of the things that WebStorm has. And I tried using, you know, the trick where you do like dot in a GitHub repo and it opens like a VS Code thingy. And I just can't stand it because this is not the thing that I use day to day. And I guess for people who use VS Code, it's pretty magical for them and they love it. For now, unless you can put WebStorm in a browser, and I think that new editor, whatever it's called, Fleet, Fleek, whatever was the name of the new editor, I think that runs in the browser too. So maybe I'll start liking them as soon as I start using this tool. Gitpod is currently working on integrating JetBrains into the browser. I don't know how it's on there. What they call it? I saw it. They're like the roadmap. There you go. Roadmaps. It could get pretty interesting. And one of the things on the CZ roadmap is, as I mentioned, there's CZ projects. So when you work on a project, you switch. Let's say I work on the CZ landing page. I write a command, switch to CZ landing page, and everything switches. It would be nice if on the side, I can also edit my code of this project without opening a code editor. So this is definitely one of the bazillion things we want to do. And it's on our roadmap. But I guess I'm not prioritizing it because every editor we could integrate in CZ will be based on Monaco and won't be based on WebStorm or any of the IntelliJ tools, but definitely on the roadmap to be able to quickly switch your project and edit your project from the browser. That would be really, really cool. While we're talking about roadmaps, I think we should segue into some really interesting things 
That's a good segue. That's a great segue. You've built many tools over your career. One of them, obviously, is the biggest one was Sizzy. You've been building, I believe you've been building it on your Twitch stream as well, a roadmap slash changelog tool. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, there are way too many slashes there. <laughs> like we added way more slashes. It's like roadmap, user requests, issues. We're trying to build a help center, a homepage. So basically we can describe Glink as a GitHub for private apps. And when I say private, I mean, you're building a thing that's paid. You don't want to have a GitHub repo for it, but you want users to report issues. You want to update users on how those issues are going. You want to have a public facing roadmap. You want people to vote on this roadmap. And once you release something like a changelog, what you can do in Glink is you can select which issues have you fixed in this changelog. And basically all the users that complained get email updates saying, hey, your issue is now closed and it's released in version 37, for example. Glink also was born out of my frustration with these other tools. I forgot the name. I was using some changelog app and it crashed twice on me in the middle of writing a big changelog. So let's say we're releasing CZ58 and I want to describe all the changes that happened there. So I was using their in-browser editor thing. And after typing for like 30, 40 minutes, I either close my tab or the browser crashes and I'm losing my draft. After this happened twice, I'm like, I need to develop a tool where instead of writing the entire changelog, you describe the features one by one, like you keep them in like a Kanban style cards layout. And once you're done with the individual things, you just group them and you release a changelog and you say, releasing version 57, we fixed X, Y, and Z. And basically I wanted a more magical process to like communicate to our users, let our users vote on features that they want us to build. And then once we've built them, we update them and we tell them, hey, this is now released. I hate that I started working on this. I tried really hard not to develop another tool, but just looking at the products that were out there, we had to combine a few different tools in order to get this functionality. So we had to build it. This is actually a really interesting area. I believe you're very lucky to be building a tool where developers love to complain and love to tell you what's broken and what needs fixing. I've actually used some of these roadmap tools before, a changelog tool in my own startup. Our target audience, literally, they don't care. They literally don't care and they just want to see an email once in a quarter. I hate that because every time I see a product update, I'm always like, oh, what's changed? What's updated? But this is actually really interesting because as we said, it was like loads of slashes as in like it's a help center, it's a roadmap, it's a request, it's a change log. One of the things that I think is actually really cool, I'm actually looking at the Sizzy one and you have the features tab. Under the features tab, you have basically every single feature of Sizzy. And then you say when they were last updated, what was changed, what was updated on a feature by feature basis, not just this massive change log list. So the idea is I want especially small creators and small teams to easily have a page on Glink where they can showcase their roadmap, their features, their change logs and everything else without writing everything twice. If we have a feature called, let's say, responsive mode, you want to document this feature, you either have a duplicate help center where in the help center, you redescribe everything that you already wrote in your change log, or you can repurpose your change log to tell the users what happened about this feature. I want a lazy way for us to keep building products and for them to be automatically documented with as little effort as possible. That's basically Glink. And that's the thing. Help centers are this really interesting, you could say, beast in any startup. It's like, I've built a tool. Great. Uh, now you got to explain it to everybody. And sometimes you feel, and this is such a founder's problem you can feel, is like sometimes you wrote a help article that says how to do this. 
Click this button. Screenshot of me clicking that button. Type in this word. Do that. Click save. Click post. That's how you do that. And you still get questions on your help bot saying, how do I do that? For sure. It's frustrating. You cannot describe your product enough that you won't get people emailing you about things that are written with big, bold letters in your help center. People will still be like, yeah, but please email me and tell me how to do it. <laughs> yeah. And half the time then look at this article. Um, and obviously there's tons of chat tools to help there and all them things. Glink is actually built in Blitz.js. Did it start in Blitz or did it evolve into Blitz? I think Glink was the first thing that I tried building with Blitz. So it started with Blitz. I had watched a stream you did with Brandon like a year and a half ago. This is the first time I'd ever seen any of your stuff. So it's like you've been on the Blitz train since it very, very first started. Yes, super early. What got you fired up about it in the beginning? Uh, just overall frustration with how we do things. As I said, everything that I do is frustration driven. And when I saw Blitz, I was like, oh, cool. We don't need four folders in our disk and a backend and a front end and millions of APIs and a complex thing like GraphQL. So when I saw it, I love GraphQL. I'm teaching GraphQL to companies. And after I learned about Blitz, I felt like a hypocrite doing my GraphQL workshops to companies because I'm like, yeah, but in like 90% of companies, you won't need anything as complex as GraphQL. And if you use Blitz and you write all of your queries and mutations separately, you will save yourself a lot of headaches. The initial pitch from Brandon seemed very interesting to me. I'm obsessed with working faster with a small team. I don't want to grow my team above 10 people. I think right now we're around five, six people, counting the people that are like part-time, but they're still involved in all the processes. I'm obsessed with how do we keep this team under 10 people and we just keep printing products. The tools that we build like Sizi and Glink are part of this story, but also Blitz is a huge part of this story because I think that if it's used properly and if we open source a lot of stuff that we use in our Blitz product, Projects. We can build new products using Blitz in a speed that it would take other teams, like I'm joking about this in my stream, like 30 months, 300 meetings. So you need 30 people, 30 months, 300 meetings to do what we're going to do with Blitz in like a couple of hours. I absolutely love it. It's something that makes me work faster, ship faster. So of course, I'm obsessed with it. This is actually a really interesting area. You're an early evangelist of Blitz. And I'm an early evangelist of Redwood building a startup myself. When I say to people, you know, exactly what we've built, how much we've built, they say, you know, how many team? And you're like, uh, I did it all myself. And they're like, what? So how did you actually hear about Blitz in the first place? I have no idea. Probably Twitter or somebody brought it up in my Discord or in my Twitch. I don't know. Well, that's an interesting one. The first time I ever heard about Blitz, first I heard about Redwood. And then secondly, I heard, well, this is the other thing comparing to it. And I've actually never built a project directly in Blitz, but I've read about it. I've done a lot of next projects. I've just never needed to go extra, as in where Blitz is uh, better over my next projects. So what enticed you to use Blitz over something like Redwood? I was, of course, evaluating both of them. I decided I want to start and try one and then keep an eye on how the other one develops. And I think it was just, I don't want to say it's, it was completely chance that I picked Blitz first. Honestly, if you compare the two documentations, Blitz seems way simpler. I already like the simplicity of Next.js where you go and create a page. Like it's, we're back in the PHP days. You go to a pages folder, you right click, you make a new file and you call it about and suddenly you have an about page. And Blitz just took this idea of if you want a query on this page, you also create a query and you just query it here. There's no backend. You don't switch to another project. You don't do anything. You just write the query here. You query it here. I'm pretty sure Redwood also works the same. You don't get a front end and a back end, right? 
but you still have GraphQL layer and, and other things there. Well, you do have a front end and a back end in the sense that there's a website and API side, but the way it's set up because you like basically run a command that like scaffolds out your back end, you get the CRUD created for you and then you can just write your query. So the CLI is able to make it so you don't really have to think about the back end, but it's there and you can edit it and it still like exists. But does it run, does the backend run on a separate port and then you have a CLI that just generates types? Yes, it does. I hate it. I absolutely hate that. Because one of the things that I hated in the process of GraphQL is I have a server that's running. I have to save it. It kills the entire server, restarts it. Then I have to go in my front end, make sure the types are updated. And just doing this 50,000 times per day has made me way slower. Well, don't use TypeScript then. Yeah, I, I was using TypeScript and I was regenerate. Oh, you mean don't use TypeScript? <laughs> yeah, just don't use TypeScript. <laughs> yeah, well, the idea is I want to sleep at night and TypeScript really helps me sleep at night because I know that my code is fully typed sometimes. But when I saw Blitz that I can go in my queries file and let's say I have a query where I get all of my users with their blog posts. Let's say I want to fetch the comments on the blog post. I go to the file, I change the Prisma query, then I go back to my React component and I can already type dot blog post, dot comments, dot whatever, because there's no type generation. There's no killing the server, restarting the server. Like everything is one thing. I think this is the thing that really sells me on Blitz and it makes me faster. I don't interrupt my thinking process. I just code and I don't care if this is on the backend side, API side. Blitz kind of fakes and tricks you into not thinking there's a backend at all. So basically everything is the same thing. And that's why I like it. And I think it's really interesting that you said earlier, I looked at both of them. I keep evaluating both of them and I happen to pick one of them. I feel exactly the same, but on the opposite coin, I picked Redwood, but I evaluated both of them, looked at both of them and went with a choice. And this is what's going to be really interesting. The main reason I picked Redwood over Blitz in the early days, obviously they're both going to that 1.0s at this point, was on the core principle of GraphQL. So you spoke about GraphQL being the best thing ever and you were teaching it to all your clients and then you picked a framework that doesn't use GraphQL. Is that contradictive or is it taught you that maybe GraphQL is not necessarily required always? Yes, GraphQL is absolutely not necessary always. What front-end developers do is they see what people are doing at Facebook and at Pinterest and at Quora and at all of these websites that have billions of users. And they're like, oh, well, also my blog with three pages and five users, I also have to use GraphQL. So that's how I think we spread all of these libraries like diseases throughout the community. Like one person uses Redux for an actually complex project. Five years later, everyone is using Redux to push a string into an array. So we had the same issue with GraphQL that everyone is doing it. Doesn't matter if the app is big or small or whatever, I need to do it too. And honestly, I don't blame anyone because it's definitely better than just using a REST API and generating types from it and so on and so forth. But I realized that maybe the biggest value I was seeing in GraphQL was I get the types automatically. So I cannot make a mistake on the backend side. I cannot make a mistake on the frontend side and everything is fully typed. I think I was more in love with that than actually GraphQL as a querying technology because the queries are great until you dive deeper and you need to scale and you need to protect everything and you need to write guards and authorization and roles and everything else. And sometimes you might ask yourself, like, why does this even need to be a graph? When I'm on the blog post page, I can just write the permission there. I can write the Prisma query there. And this is what I get on the blog post page without thinking about how does a blog post relate to a comment? How does it relate to a user and blah, blah, blah. So when do you recommend to use GraphQL? Like, what do you think are good uses? I honestly don't know because in Glink right now, 
when I'm doing my streams, probably once per, per stream, I'm saying, damn it, I miss GraphQL for this. Because we're at a scale right now, we have that many things that are easily solvable with like GraphQL fragments and stuff that with Blitz and with Prisma, like you have to invent your own reusing mechanism, basically. You're either going to reuse the parts of the Prisma query, but it's still not GraphQL at the end of the day. So I'm still not sure how to answer this. When would I recommend for people to choose GraphQL or Redwood over Blitz? Because I'm still struggling with points of developing this app where I'm like, it would have been really nice if we had something like GraphQL somewhere for some part of this data, but not for everything. So there are cases where they're like complex reusable queries where we don't need the data directly from the database, but we need the data from the database combined with some other data with a bunch of other computed data, which GraphQL completely nails. And in Blitz and Prisma, you're left on your own to write all of these reusable queries, fragments, and things. So I still haven't 100% made up my mind on this thing. I still need to finish building this app for me to say, in the future, I'd prefer to use Blitz or I'd prefer to go back and use GraphQL for everything. I think this is a really interesting point because whenever, you know, we get the round table together, Redword, Blitz, you know, we all talk so similar on, you know, Prisma. We instantly talk exactly the same because we use it exactly the same. React, pretty much identical. But the area that is so different between both of them is that querying layer. Your Redwood camp go, GraphQL is the only way to do it these days. Like, why would you do it any other way? And then Brandon and Blitz will go, you don't need that. You know, we will show you how to do it without that. And then you go, huh, can you even do that? And the most interesting concept that actually made me pick one over the other was the multiple client use case. When you need, a, say, a second client to connect to your API, I believe it then gets a lot harder to integrate that into your Blitz app. Have you had any use cases of that yet? Or has it always been direct one-to-one -one with the front end to the back end? I wouldn't say this would be easier with GraphQL if you have a consumer-facing API, but you also use the same API for yourself. Actually, you can make more mistakes. You know, you have to think about all sorts of permissions, like what can I expose to the users, what's kept only for our internal usage, where we have this thing with Glink, where we expose the CZ features through an API in order to consume them on the CZ landing page. So if you go to the CZ landing page, there's a section that's built by querying Glink to query which are the CZ features that we want to display. And that's done by just exposing one API endpoint called slash API slash project slash features. So anyone who has a Glink project, they can easily expose their features to this API endpoint. So I wouldn't say that this is harder and I wouldn't say that for this, I'm missing GraphQL. But if this starts getting bigger, it's going to be very hard to build with just a REST API. And I guess if we expose a public API for doing more things, we're going to do it with GraphQL. So we're still going to internally use the Blitz queries for the internal front end. But externally, as soon as it gets more complex than three to four functions and API endpoints, I would definitely just call it a day and just expose one GraphQL endpoint there. This is actually also really interesting. GraphQL, how did you build with it and what tools did you use? Because Redwood likes to say that it is, you can necessarily call it the pinnacle of GraphQL development. <laughs> And when I say that, is that's me saying that. Yeah, none of us has ever said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say that I say that because I used GraphQL before Redwood and after Redwood. And after Redwood, GraphQL became a lot easier. Things like permission management, things like building your queries, SDL management, function management, all of them came a lot 
lot easier when I used it with Redwood instead of building the graph myself. Is that something that you think is the missing part in your mind when you think of GraphQL is when you say everything's a lot harder is because no tool is managing all of that for you? Yes, 100%. I've been using the Prisma set of tools since the beginning. I trusted Prisma that they're the right way to do GraphQL. Since the GraphQL days, I remember going to their tiny office in Berlin and having lunch with them. And when they told me, oh, soon GraphQL is going to be gone and we're going to open source everything, I just dropped my fork and I'm like, this is not going to end good. So throughout the years, they just open source more and more and more. And they basically, by thinking they're simplifying the way to build GraphQL endpoints, I think they're lost their way in what Prisma is and what's their set of tools. So they had like GraphQL Nexus. And then, no, it's not GraphQL Nexus. It's just the Nexus framework. Then we dropped the framework. We just call it Nexus. Now it's Nexus with Prisma Tools plugin. No, it's not Prisma Tools. Now it's just the Nexus Prisma Schema plugin. When you throw all of these 30,000 words to a beginner and tell them how to build a GraphQL server with Node.js, a lot of people will be like, no, thank you. I'll just use Blitz or a REST API or whatever, because you cannot rely on any of these tools. Like they get deprecated and there hasn't been one tool in that space that supported for a long time and kept the same API for a long time. Recently, I had to do a workshop about React and I've built myself an app with Nexus, GraphQL, Prisma tools, things. And the last time I touched this app was a year ago. So now I need to fix things in my teaching app before the workshop. And I try to fire this Nexus Prisma thing. 50% of the things were deprecated or weren't working anymore. Like I try to run my project. It's like, oh no, this is deprecated. Oh no, Prisma doesn't work that way anymore. So we just did a stream with one contractor that works with me. And I was like, can we rebuild this in Blitz? My entire app that I've been building with GraphQL for months, can we rebuild it with Blitz? in three hours. And it actually took us seven hours, but we actually rebuilt the entire app. So I've been struggling with GraphQL, Nexus, Prisma tools, things for months. And now we rebuild it in like seven hours. I'm pretty sure that people will be able to build it with Redwood also in seven hours, but the Prisma and Nexus set of tools is way too unreliable to throw it to a beginner or even to someone who's not a beginner. It's going to get like intimidated with the amount of options there. there. I don't know how you build with Redwood, so I don't want to compare, but this is way too complex. When I initially built our first MVP, I built it with Prisma, Prisma 1, Nexus, and all them tools where the gold standards like GraphQL API is that. It was confusing as hell, and I completely agree to you. I would say if you want to reignite maybe your passion for GraphQL, you should try it with Redwood. Yeah, because all the things you're talking about is exactly what Redwood is trying to address. Like Redwood doesn't use Nexus. It's only using Prisma as the ORM. And it's trying to create a much more stable, reliable way to build GraphQL. So like, so we hear you on that. And that is exactly what we're trying to do with Redwood is just like GraphQL is awesome, but it's complicated. And there's ways we can simplify it. And there's ways we can create conventions to make it a lot easier. And that's like the whole point. What if I would like to build the GraphQL endpoint only without actually using Next.js? Because Prisma tools and Nexus allow you to do that. I'm not sure if Redwood, if that's the purpose of it, or it's just tightly coupled with Next.js and it doesn't make sense without it. Well, it doesn't use Next.js at all. So it has its own React router built in. Oh, yeah. 
you can just ignore the front end entirely. Uh-huh. Because you were saying, like, you hate that you have two ports, right? But because you have two ports and they're separate, you can just delete one entirely from your project. You can just have a static React front end if you want, or you can just have a GraphQL API if you want, and then you can combine them or you can separate them and you can, like, run one in a Docker container and one not. Like, it's totally decoupled. And so that's the thing that I really like about it. I think it's really nice is they're decoupled and you can do whatever you want with the front or the back end and take or leave either. To give you my example, in Everfund, we're basically a payment platform. So we have a dashboard and an API. The dashboard is built in Redwood's website. The API is built in GraphQL. And then we also have a Next.js client that's the payment app that allows you to do all the payments between everyone that is built in next that communicates directly to the graphql api without touching the redwood side of the redwood web it's definitely worth giving a look at but the biggest caveat is Next.js is its own complete beast that has its own ways of doing everything. And you will probably miss the Next.js's nuances with Redwood. But where Redwood excels is with its API layer, for sure. I like to say I like to use the best tool for the best use case, as in Next.js with the GraphQL client for the speed in that area and the Redwood for its connectability, doing that front to back. API criticals. It's really worth looking at. This is not one of us trying to convert you over to the Redwood side from the Blitz side. It's just that thing, like you said at the beginning, I've looked at both tools and picked one of them. We set these motions in our head that we hear Prisma. Prisma, well, I would say Prisma too, but now it's just Prisma, you know. I want to use the best ORM. I want to use the latest version of uh, React. I hear Jest is pretty good and you should use that and Storybook and all these things. And then you go, I'm going to start gluing it all together myself. And then the amount of hours you've spent gluing it all together, you go, that was pretty much useless because someone else has done it for me. And that's what all of us are coming towards of this point of there's all these tools out there. Some of them are really helpful. And as you said, some of them are viruses that we spread across everywhere without no need. So it's where to go and where to find their use cases. I still believe today that Redwood JS and Blitz.js have different use cases for different apps. And it's actually really good to have somebody on the podcast that has actually built an app in Blitz.js in production because we have actually been very Redwood heavy, even though we've had Brandon on multiple times. What do you think the ecosystem needs to see more Blitz.js websites, more companies integrating things like Blitz.js into their tech stack from the beginning? Oh, that's an interesting one. We need less hype. We need people to stop listening to, I'm putting big quotes around this word, thought leaders. And we need people to start using their own heads to look at their own analytics and to see, oh, we're actually catering to 100 users. All of them are in USA. All of them are on a speedy network. I don't need to do whatever Facebook does. So my latest talk was called You're Not Facebook, where I'm basically repeating for 30 minutes. I mean, I wish this was the talk. You're not Facebook. You're not Facebook. I'm trying to tell developers, don't do everything as Facebook does. You don't need to use Recoil to have pure non-mutational state management. You don't need to use GraphQL. You don't need to complicate things. Because I think when people look at Blitz, they're like, oh, this is simple and straightforward. And what we're used to in front-end development is I want to make my life complex because secretly I want to believe that I'm building the next Facebook. But you're actually building your blog that three people are going to read. So I think that 
in order to people to adopt this, they need to be more realistic with themselves. Who are they building for? And people need to definitely stop talking about scale in every scenario. Everyone is like scale, scale, but does it scale, does it scale? Where in a lot of cases, it doesn't matter. The discussion about serverless versus servers. I tried Blitz with serverless Prisma version a couple of times. Too many bugs, too many connections, strings, whatever Prisma is complaining. And I'm like, why am I trying to use serverless at all? And I had no answer. Like, I'm totally fine paying for a server that's stable and supports all of the users that we have now. In the future, if we need to support billions of users and we don't scale, then we can easily switch. But with everything I've been saying throughout my career, since I started attending conferences until now, I see easy solutions in front of my eyes and I see the majority of developers don't want to accept the easy solutions. This is a recurring pattern. I started with Redux. I saw MobX. I was like, holy shit, this is billion times easier, billion times more scalable. In my workshops, I open the CZ folder. I tell people, I show our state management in CZ. We have, and I'm not exaggerating, we have probably more than... 300 files only for state management with Redux, I would have quit a long time by now. So we're using MobX State Tree. So we see this as a simple solution and I hear the majority of people saying, no, but somebody from Facebook said that Redux is scalable and it's nice, blah, blah, blah. Then we have something as easy as Blitz. People don't believe in easy. We have something as easy as WebStorm pitching themselves as, hey, you install this, your life's going to be easy because we've thought of everything. And then the majority of developers are like, nah, but I would still like to build my own editor and install 50,000 plugins. Then you have stuff, even Redwood, I would put it in the same corner with Blitz. When people look at Redwood and Blitz, they might say, oh, wait, but this is too magical. I want to build my own micro front-end dockerized Kubernetes solution because I don't think that Redwood or Blitz are good enough for me. So it's not about what should happen to adopt Blitz or what should happen to adopt Redwood, like all of them in the same corner. Web developers like complicating their life. They like complex things. Redwood and Blitz are pitching themselves as simplifying someone's life. And that's why I think they're not popular enough. Might not be the answer you were looking for, but I really believe this and I'm not joking. I do completely agree. And you see all the time with so many tools. My favorite one is Fetch. We have this default API in every browser to fetch some data. And then you start believing, you know, if you believe everything you hear on the internet, well, you're going to need SWR or React Query to fetch some data now and then start managing that data. And you've just built a blog or something that just fetches the data once in a blue moon. It's It can get overkill really, really fast. And I think that's where we are seeing this overhype really not take off, but polarize a lot of users. I have been polarized, for example, by Gatsby. I built a store, a Shopify store in Gatsby for somebody. It worked for a year. And I would say a year, but it started getting worse and worse. It would just start breaking and breaking. Like it just won't build. And they're like, look, we really need you to fix it. I was like, how hard can it be to not even change the UI, but just change the underlying layer? You know, it's just communicating with Shopify. It took me more than 40 hours to swap it from Gatsby to Next.js. And this was a pretty complex e-commerce store. And it's just like, and now it's on Next.js. It's like, I'm, I'm literally like, I go to them and be like, oh, so you used to have to click build and then it would wait five minutes and then you'd get your answer. Now, if you just refresh the page, it will just refetch it in the background. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, it just does that now. And it's like that thing of like technology moves so fast. We're all so fast to jump on something before we've seen how it's going to turn out. 
And this is my big thing right now with Jamstack frameworks. We watch conference talks about how Astro and all these other tools are coming along and how, you know, we should jump on them today. But if you're going to build something today, what should you really build it on? I think that's actually a really hard question. And even coming to know where and what framework you should pick to do that, it's still an answer that I don't think we have in the industry. And that's why we're seeing this mass amounts of frameworks coming out the blue. Here's my way of building it. Here's my way. But there's no unified way that's just like the way forward. Yes, and it's super frustrating. I'm joking in my streams that in this web community, we don't have enough people sitting in pubs drinking beer together. All the time when I get frustrated with GraphQL and Blitz, I'm like, can the people from Redwood and Brandon from Blitz and the people from Next.js and Guillermo and whoever's in charge over Cell and Netlify and whatever, just grab a beer together and be like, guys, we're all fetching JSON and we're all moving rectangles. Let's just come up with a standard so there's not a developer every Monday rebuilding a button, every Tuesday rebuilding a form, every Thursday changing the way we fetch JSON. And at the end of the day, just look back 10 years and look back now, websites look the same. Everything looks the same. It's still a bunch of rectangles, but nobody likes to agree on a standard. Everyone thinks, oh, I'm going to build it better than the other person. And it just doesn't end. That's it. Part of the, the dream for this podcast is to get those people together and have those conversations. Not enough people. We, we need way more people sitting at a round table making decisions, saying we're not going to rebuild the way we do buttons until 2035. On December 17th, 2035, we're going to change the way buttons look. I'm trying something internally in my company. It's a bit hard. We said we we're going to freeze our stack to Blitz, Chakra UI, Prisma, and a couple other things that we do internally. And we're not going to change it in the next few years. Because all the time there's new shiny things like you told me about Redwood right now. And I might go back tomorrow and tell everyone, guys, we're changing everything to Redwood. But I think if we just stick to Blitz, Prisma, and Chakra and a couple of other things, we can build more, we can reuse more. But it's hard. It's definitely hard. My final comment to say is um, Bootstrap has been around for years. Why did we move away from it to Tailwind? Why do we now have 20 class names for one button? We seem to hate ourselves and be building ourselves these monsters in our closets. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We'd love to get you on again to talk about this stuff again in the future. Maybe when Blitz has hit 1.0, we can get you on to talk about how you found upgrading and growing with the framework inside your company and outside. So where can people find you and get hold of you? All right. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me on the podcast. It was a pleasure being here and talking to you. Thank you for not starting to talk about CSS because we would have needed another hour to do it. Yeah, people can find me at kitze.io. That's my website and I have all of my projects there. And usually I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash thekitze. So that's T-H-E-K-I-T-Z-E. You'll probably have links to this and I won't need to spell it. So either we're going to do another podcast at some point or I'm going to get so frustrated with all of these frameworks and the way we do things and I'm going to become a fisherman and we're never going to talk again. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you very much.
Sweet. You almost made the whole episode without swearing. <laughs> Dropped one oh. swear right towards the end. Okay. Hey, that's <laughs> past as PG-12 these days. <laughs>